There is nothing that Jesus needs you to do for him. He lacks nothing. All of the Lord's needs are perfectly met within the Trinity. There's nothing you could do to benefit him. He's already perfect. There's nothing you could give to him that he doesn't already own. There's nothing Jesus needs you to do for him. Oh, sure, he, he gives us the privilege of being involved in his work. He allows us the joy of being a tool in his hands. There are things that he asks us to do for him. But God doesn't have any needs, you understand? God is the only being who is completely self-sufficient. No one is responsible for his existence and he relies on no one else to keep in existence. There's nothing Jesus needs you to do for him. But there is something that you need Jesus to do for you. You need him to save you. More than you need anything else in life today, you need Jesus to save you. Today, if you're here and you've never been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you need what only Jesus can do for you. Only Jesus can rescue you from the fate that awaits you apart from Christ. If you're already a believer, if you've already been transformed and changed by faith in Jesus Christ, today what I would say to you is you need very much to reflect on what Jesus has already done for you. I think one of the main things that is a reason our joy dwindles in the Christian life. One of the reasons our devotion is not as passionate as we would like it to be. One of the reasons our worship on the Lord's Day maybe is not as energized and is not as heartfelt as we'd like it to be. Maybe because it's been a little too long since we really stopped and thought about what Jesus has done for us. I know we talk about whether well, the Lord saved me and we, we throw this term around, people being saved and all that, but, but I wonder how long it's been since you really stopped and thought about what does that even mean? We tell unbelievers, you need to be saved. What does that even mean? We talk about, I'm saved. What does it even mean? Oh, how I think it, it, it's not often enough that we really stop and really think about it. What exactly are we saying to people when we say you need Jesus to save you? What exactly are we saying when we say that we're saved? We're going to look in Mark chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, please note there's one right in the back of the pew in front of you. And I'd invite you to take it and turn to Mark 14. Mark is the second gospel in the New Testament. 
right after Matthew. We're going to be in Mark 14, verses 22 through 26. If you'd like to turn there, I'll invite you to stand as I read God's Word. And while they were eating, he took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is God-breathed. And apart from your assistance, we will not be able to truly understand it. So I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to really see the truth. Open our ears to hear the voice of God speaking through his word. And use the truth we hear to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me remind you a little bit of the context. In the scriptures we read tonight, these events happen just a few hours before Jesus is nailed to a cross. This is the night before he will be crucified early the next morning. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. The the plan is already set in motion. Jesus is spending his last hours with his closest disciples, preparing them for his death and what will happen after his death. They are coming together to share what is the Passover meal. Passover is one of the religious feasts the Jews have celebrated for centuries since the days of Moses when Israel was delivered from the nation of Egypt. And it is the night to share the Passover meal. Jesus does that. That's what's going on in these verses. And I'm going to explain a little more about that as we go. But as Jesus shares this meal with his friends, he's teaching them what his death is all about. Now, they wouldn't fully understand it until after, but it's by looking at these verses that we understand what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is really about. It's by looking at these verses that we really come to understand what do we mean by Jesus saves us. You see, by his sacrificial death, Jesus makes salvation possible. He accomplishes salvation for those who would believe. But what do we mean when we say that? Well, let's look at what these verses teach us and find out. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Now keep in mind, these verses are all about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death. And so as we think about the first thing, look at this. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, you can be forgiven. 
What do we mean when we talk about being saved? Well, it means to be forgiven. Look at the scripture. They were eating. You see that in verse 22? They were eating what is traditionally the Passover supper. Now, to understand this, I need to explain a little bit to you what the traditional Passover meal looked like. If you don't understand that, this doesn't make as much sense. The Passover meal traditionally revolved around four cups of wine. Okay? They would begin with drinking a cup of wine. Then they would have what we would call a vegetable appetizer. They had certain vegetables they would eat. Then, after the blessing, they would drink the second cup of wine. Okay? After the second cup of wine, they would sing Psalm 113 through 115, the first half of what's called the Hallel. After singing these psalms, the youngest son, okay, Passover was normally celebrated in families. The youngest son would ask the father, why is this night different from every other night? It's then that the father would explain the different parts of the meal and what they signified. The Passover lamb reminds us that God redeemed us from slavery in Egypt. The unleavened bread, he would explain how the people were saved from Egypt and didn't have time to let their yeast rise so the bread was unleavened. The bitter herbs they ate was to signify the bitter slavery they had suffered under the Egyptians for 400 years. So the father would explain all the parts of the meal. Then after blessing the meal, the family would partake in the main meal. Then they would share the third cup of wine. After the third cup of wine, they would sing the second half of the Hallel, which was Psalm 116 through 18. Hallel is just the Hebrew word for praise. And after they sang those last cups, they would sing the final, excuse me, they would drink the final cup, the fourth cup. So that's what a traditional Passover meal kind of looked like. Now I want you to look in verse 22. Look what's happening. While they were eating, he took some bread. After blessing, he broke it. This would be right after the second cup of wine. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and this is the part of the meal where normally the father would explain what the different parts of the meal signified. But you'll notice Jesus changes it. He doesn't give the traditional explanation that the unleavened bread signifies. Uh, he doesn't tie it to Egypt and to the original Passover. Look what he says. He says, take it. This is my body. Think about this. He's got the bread. He breaks it and says, this is my body. He's pointing to the fact that in just a matter of a few hours, his body is going to be broken. He's going to die. You see the same thing in the cup. Verse 23, when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. They drank from him and he said, this is my blood. In Hebrew thought, Blood signifies life. 
the life was in the blood. The spilling of blood signifies death, the taking of a life. Notice what that verse says. This is my blood poured out for many. Poured out means spilled, means he's going to die. And, and the key words are for many. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's pointing to his death, but here's the most important thing for you to see. It's pointing to his death on behalf of someone else. You see, this is my body. Luke twenty-two nineteen says, given for you. This is my blood poured out for many. So in the elements of the Lord's Supper that we're going to share here in a little bit, we take the bread and the cup to remind us that Jesus' death was for our benefit. Are you with me? His sacrifice was on behalf of others. Now, this is what I need you to see. When we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, when he passed out the bread and the wine, and we consume those elements, the bread, the wine, we take them into ourselves. I want you to think about what this signifies. It signifies we are receiving the benefit of his death. You understand? His death was a sacrificial death on the behalf of others. When we eat the bread, we drink the wine. That signifies that we are receiving the benefit of what he did for us. If you with me, do this. This is so important. This is the heart of the Christian faith. So the question then we have to ask is, well, what is the benefit of what Jesus did for us on the cross? What is the benefit of his sacrificial death? First and foremost, it is this. On the cross, as Jesus died, he took the penalty for our sin. In other words, his death was substitutionary. He died in our place. He died for the crimes we had done. Right? The song we just sang, was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon that tree? The answer, yes. The, listen, he suffered the penalty for our sin. Why? So we could be forgiven. What's the first and foremost benefit of his death? It's forgiveness. Take this bread and eat it. Drink this cup. Receive the benefit of my death. Receive the forgiveness of sins that I have provided you. Let me ask you a question or two. Have you ever told a lie? The right answer is yes. And if you say no, well, you just told your first one. So now you're a liar. You ever love something or someone more than you love God? You ever, ever been something in your life that was more important than God? You ever look at something somebody else had and say, boy, I sure I wish I had that. I wish that was mine, that house, that wife, that husband, that job, that car, that bank account. You ever take something that wasn't yours? 
a quarter from your mama's purse, a piece of candy that belonged to your brother. You ever use God's name in a way that was less than reverent? In other words, you spoke the name of God, but you weren't using it in a way that was to honor him. See, all of those things are the part of the Ten Commandments. What's the point? The point is you're a sinner. All those things I've just listed, you've done. I've done. Many times. That makes you a sinner. That makes me a sinner. Romans 3.23 says it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And in the Bible, death is not just physical death. It's spiritual death. And then what Revelation calls the second death or eternal death, which is the lake of fire. We call it hell. The wages of sin, what you get because you sin, the penalty of your sin is death and eternal separation from God in torment. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice so that you could be forgiven of the sin that would condemn you to eternal death. Are you with me? He died to wipe the slate clean. Did you know on the cross they would nail above your head a sign if you were a criminal? And on that sign, the, the charges were written. In other words, what you were guilty of. On Jesus' cross, it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. But if you read the book of Colossians, you know what Colossians said? When they nailed that sign up there that lists what you're guilty of, what Paul said in that book, he says, that was our sin. That was the list of our sins they nailed to his cross. In other words, he was dying for what we'd done. What am I saying to you today? I'm saying to you today that you can be forgiven. No matter what you've done. No matter how many times you've done it. You need to be forgiven and you can be forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. I need to move on. I want you to notice the, the, the second aspect of his death and how that speaks to us. We said because of Jesus' sacrifice, you can be forgiven. But notice this, because of Jesus' sacrifice, you can know God. K-N-O-W, God. Look at verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. First question we have to ask is this. What is a covenant? Okay, a covenant is a binding agreement that regulates the relationship between two parties, two people or two groups of people. The most common example in our day is marriage. Marriage is a legally binding agreement. You make vows, you make vows. You sign the marriage certificate you apply for that you sign your name 
and you are in a legal ceremony, you are bound together, that's a covenant. Well, God made a covenant with his people all the way back in the book of Exodus. We call it the old covenant. I want to read Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Moses took the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant means the book that described the terms of the covenant. In a covenant, each party has responsibilities and each party receives benefits. The book of the covenant, which was part of the scripture, described what each party's responsibility was, God and the people, and what each party would receive in return. Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Now watch this. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Behold the blood of the covenant. Here's the thing you need to understand. Covenants could only be ratified by the shedding of blood. That's why it was called cutting a covenant. Most translations would say making a covenant, but literally in Hebrew, it is cutting a covenant because it, it pictures the shedding of blood. So what we see in Exodus 24 is God ratifying his covenant with his people, the old covenant, the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And he does it through the shedding of blood. So now understand when Jesus says, this is my blood, blood of the covenant, What's he saying? He says, I'm making with you a covenant, but it's a new covenant. And Jeremiah describes it exactly. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Listen to how Jeremiah describes the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Catch what God is saying. He says, I had a covenant with the people. They broke it over and over. They, they didn't keep up their half of the bargain. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to have a new relationship. Remember, a covenant is about a relationship. It regulates a relationship. God said, I'm going to begin to relate to my people in a different way. And look at some of the things he says. I'm going to write my law on their heart. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. In other words, it's going to be, it's, their heart's going to be changed. I'm going to be their God. 
every one of them will know me. They'll be forgiven. In other words, in this new covenant, what I'm going to do with them is not going to depend on their obedience. It's going to depend on the obedience of another. And when Jesus says, and back in Mark, back in our scripture, this is the blood of the covenant, he's saying my death is what brings this new covenant into being. The new, the new day and time when God relates to his people by grace. You understand? Now, today, because of Jesus, your relationship with God does not depend on your ability to obey. Are you supposed to obey? Yes. Do Christians live in obedience? Yes. But you do not enter into a relationship with God because of your obedience. You can never be good enough to earn a relationship with God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying my death is what enables you to have this relationship with God. Remember I told you in a covenant both parties have responsibilities? There are terms. A covenant has terms. I vow to do this. I vow to do that. Jesus met the terms of the covenant on our behalf. Does that make sense? What the covenant requires of us so that we can have a relationship with God, Jesus did it. He fulfilled it. What does all that mean? All that means now because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can have a relationship with God. Listen, what does that mean? It means you can know God. I don't mean up here. I mean, know by experience. How many of you know there's some people you know and there's some people you know? My wife knows me better than anybody else on this planet. My mama gave birth to me, but my mama don't know me like she does. It's personal. It's intimate. That's the kind of knowledge of God we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of knowledge that only comes from walking with God, that only comes from living with God, that only comes from day in and day out talking with God, walking with God, getting to know God. You can have that kind of personal, close, intimate relationship with God, not just knowing about God in your head, but experiencing God in your life. Listen, when we talk about being saved, we don't just mean being forgiven of sin. We mean being brought into a relationship with God where like the song says, He walks with me and He talks with me. That's what Jesus can do for you. He, he can give you that kind of relationship. My daddy had a friend who wanted to get married only one problem, he was already married to somebody else. So this is what happened. At the courthouse in Columbia, Mississippi, his divorce was made final. He drove from the courthouse at Columbia, Mississippi to First Baptist Church in Columbia, walked into the office and was remarried. <laughs> Divorced, remarried, same day. This is what I'm trying to say to you. 
you can't marry God as long as you're married to sin. What Jesus has done in his death is divorce you from sin so that you can enter into a, a relationship with God. Are you with me? Jesus makes your marriage to sin null and void. He separates you from sin. When you receive his sacrifice, you're divorced from sin. That's what the Bible means when it talks about being crucified with Christ. He died for sin and we die to sin. That relationship is severed so that now you can enter into a relationship with God. Are you with me? What am I telling you? What, well, what do you need Jesus to do for you? You need him to forgive you so that you can have this relationship with God. But, but even that's not all of it. I, I need to move on. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, you can go to heaven. What do we mean when we talk about being saved? We mean being forgiven of all our sin. We mean entering into a relationship with God that is real and intimate and personal. And we mean going to heaven when we die. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? In the most simplest terms, God's kingdom is his, is his reign as king, his rule as king. In the Bible, the kingdom of God is interchangeable with the term kingdom of heaven. They're the same thing. But when Jesus talks about drinking wine new in the kingdom of God, what he's referring to is the time when he will rule over all things in person. Right? When he's going to come back physically and he's going to rule over all creation physically. That's what he means. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's what you and I would think of as the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth as the Bible describes it. You and I usually just call it heaven. It's the eternal state of things. After this old world is gone, Jesus is ruling over a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. And he says... I'm going to drink wine new in the kingdom of God. New wine is a sign of prosperity. Let, let me read you one scripture to give you an example. This is from Genesis 27, 28. You remember the story of Jacob and Isaac? Jacob deceived his father so that he could get the blessing of the firstborn. Isaac thought he was giving the blessing to Esau, and who did he really give it to? He gave it to Jacob. Listen to that blessing. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. This idea of new wine is all about prosperity. It's about an abundance of good. 
That's why the Bible talks about uh, uh, God making all things new. Revelation 21, 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That means a new state of things, where all things are abundant and prosperous. What do we mean? He's saying, look, I'm going to create a new heaven and earth where the, all the effects of sin are gone. No more sin. All the, all the disease and death that sin has caused will be gone. All the tragedy and violence and wickedness will be gone. There will be a new creation, sin removed, and all the devastation of sin. It will be a new perfect place. And what Jesus is saying to them, I'm not going to drink wine again until we drink the new wine in the kingdom of God. In the new heaven and the new earth. Now I need you to understand this. Verse 25 is an oath. He's taking an oath. Truly I say to you, that means listen very carefully, this is important. I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is, uh, he's declaring an oath. In other words, he's making a promise. He's making a promise that one day we're going to all be in the kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth. Sharing fellowship around the table together. It's a picture of heaven. Think about this. You, you remember the Old Testament? They had the, they had the temple. You could not enter the temple if you were ceremonially unclean. If you had broken one of the laws, you couldn't go in the temple. What that does, it symbolizes how sin keeps us out of God's presence. Sin separates us from God. That's what God was trying to teach the people. If they became unclean, they'd broken one of the laws, they couldn't go into the temple until the prescribed sacrifice was made. If you broke one of the laws, you committed a sin, there was a specific sacrifice you had to make. Once you went through that process, then you were considered ceremonially clean and you would be allowed to enter the temple again. What's all about? What's that all about? What God is trying to teach His people is we need a sacrifice to take away our sin if we're ever going to enter into His presence. What Jesus is telling these people, this is my body, this is my blood, and because of this sacrifice, we one day will be in the new heaven and earth in fellowship together. What's all that mean? It means... His sacrifice is what opens the door for them to go into the kingdom of God. You understand? Just like in the Old Testament. If you sinned and you couldn't go in the temple until the sacrifice was made, you couldn't go into the presence of God. Once the sacrifice was made, you could. But all that was just a picture. That was just a symbol to teach them about the real sacrifice, which was Jesus and entering into the real presence of God, which is heaven. What Jesus is saying is, because of my sacrifice, you'll be made clean, and you can once again enter into my presence forever in heaven. I want you to think about this. People say, I, I don't understand. You know, nobody's perfect. 
You know, why, why, why do people have to be perfect to go to heaven? Well, think about this. Heaven is a perfect place. What's the only thing that differentiates heaven and earth? The, the eternal heaven and the earth we now live in? What's the only thing that makes heaven different from earth? Sin. All of the problems we have on this earth, all of the imperfections on this earth are all because of sin. So why can't God, I mean, why, why do people have to be perfect to get in heaven? Because heaven is not heaven if sin is there. It destroys the whole point. It, it's not heaven. We have to be made perfect. In the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as good enough. The standard is perfection. That's why only Jesus can get us in. Are you with me? Only he can get us in because only he's perfect. You can only go in on his merit, never on your own. But because of his sacrifice, you can. This is what I'm saying to you. The dream of living in a perfect world can be a reality. Under King Jesus, no violence, no hatred, no poverty, no sickness, no jealousy, no death. And there will be overflowing joy and overflowing peace and pleasure like you've never known. Fulfillment and satisfaction like you've never known. Here's the simple thing. What keeps you out of heaven is sin. Jesus removes the thing that keeps you out of heaven. Jesus' death is the key that unlocks the prison bars of sin and opens the gates of heaven at the same time. Are you understanding what I'm telling you? Sin is a wall between you and God. Jesus' death is what tears down that wall. It's what enables you to enter into the presence of God in heaven. And only Jesus makes that possible. Only Jesus. What can Jesus do for you? He can save you. What does that mean? Forgiveness. A real relationship with God and eternity in heaven. That's what it means. When you walk out of the doors of this church here in just a few minutes, you look across the street, you're going to see hundreds of tombstones. Every one of them is a reminder that you're going to die. On the other side of death, there are only two options, heaven or hell. You cannot save yourself from hell. You have the same chance of saving yourself from hell as you do performing successful brain surgery on yourself. You need Jesus to do for you what you simply cannot do. How many of you have had a toddler who liked to say, I can do it myself? You ever seen a kid say that? Picture a little three-year-old in his booster seat at the table. In front of him, there's a gallon jug of Kool-Aid and his glass is empty. And you see him reach for that pitcher. And you know what's coming if you let him try to get that pitcher. Disaster. You say, no, 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 no. You're not big enough to do that. 
You need to let me do it for you. What am I saying to you today? I'm telling you, you need to be saved. And you're not big enough to do that. You need to let Jesus do it for you. You're not big enough to do that. You can't do it. You need to give up this idea of, I think I'm good enough. You need to let Jesus do it for you. Today, if you'll look to him, cry from your heart, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe you died for me so that I could be forgiven, so that I could know God, so that I could go to heaven. Only you can save me, Jesus, and I beg you now to do it. If you'll do that today, Jesus will do for you what you could never do for yourself. And believer, if you know that you're already born again, you've been saved and you're confident of that, I wonder when's the last time you really took time to really think about exactly what Jesus did, what it means to say you're saved, that you've been absolutely forgiven of all sin, past, present, future. That you can know God. I wonder if you're experiencing the joy of that day in and day out, if you're really milking that for what it's worth, that you can know God. And that you have heaven to look forward to. Maybe reflecting on that today is just what you need to rekindle your joy. Maybe thinking long and hard about that today is just what you need to reignite your devotion to Jesus. Maybe today what you need to energize your worship is to take time and really think about what Jesus has done for you. Bad news and good news. Bad news is you can't save yourself. Good news is you don't have to. Jesus can do it for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word.